really committed to making the point that it, we're not just sitting like chickens on a nest, that when we sit, there's a point to it. I remember once I, I was, uh, it's a long time ago, and the woman stays in my mind. I was having a, 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 my annual ma a mammogram. So I was a young woman having a mammogram. And, you know, you, you try to say something. The mammogram technician says something to you and you say something to them, you know, so it's a little bit relaxed. And uh, she said to me, uh, what do you do for a work? And I said, oh, I'm a meditation teacher. And she said, oh, I meditate too. And uh, I said, what do you do? And she said, every morning I get out of bed and I sit on my sofa and I wrap myself in my quilt that I have there. And I sit there for a half hour or 20 minutes. I actually don't remember how long she sat there. And I said, then what? She said, and then I go to work. So she said, it's just better if I do that. And she didn't say I sat down and I organized my thoughts or I became very concentrated or I did a review, I, um, I, um, moral inventory of the day before. Some people do that as their meditation practice. But, but she knew her results. She said, the day goes better if I get up, wrap myself in my quilt, sit there for 20 minutes and then go to work. So she knew the result of it. I, what I'm getting at, actually, is what are you doing and what do you believe is going to happen from it? <laughs> uh, one of the things that happened, I, another un, person without a name, because I don't remember his name, uh, at a um, at a uh, meta retreat, a loving kindness retreat, maybe 10 years ago, maybe 15 somewhere. And if you have been on a meditation retreat, you know that we give instructions during the day, certainly at the start of every day. And then people all day long are moving for a while around, walking and sitting for a while and moving for a while and sitting for a while. And this particular, and we give instructions, now do this, now do this, but the instructions are technical instructions. Notice your breath coming in and out, for instance, as we did when we closed the eyes and I said, notice your breath coming in and out. Might have given an instruction that said, every time a breath is finished, count it on your fingers. Every time you get 10 fingers counted, close your hands and start again. That's an instruction. Might have given another kind of instruction. Every time that you breathe out, think to yourself, may I feel peaceful and at ease. May I feel peaceful and at ease. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. There's lots of different things you could say as the instruction. But if anyway, here's this guy and I come in I, I to meet him on his third day of practicing. And he wasn't unhappy. But he said, he looked at me, you know, appreciably, not accusingly. And he said, what's going on here, really? You know, what's going on here, really? So I want to say to him, really, what we're doing is we're purifying our hearts from negative thoughts. And we're really training our hearts and minds to habituate themselves to a kind response. That's what we're doing here, really. 
I, I wanted to say it in a way. First of all, I was a little bit dismayed. I was, certainly didn't want him to feel badly to have asked. Like, but I felt badly that we had not made that more clear. That we're not practicing to be very good at reciting mantras or blessings of goodwill for other people. Could recite from now till kingdom come and not actually be changed by it unless I knew what it was that I wanted to have happen. Does that make sense to you? I mean, that, you know what? I would really like to have time to, you know how I'm going to do this? I'm going to give you an an instruction and you do it. (laughs) You do it for uh, six minutes and which will give me time to look at the people uh, in their homes on other pages. I can only see 25 of you at one time, and I want to see everybody, and we have three pages of people. So let's do, um, okay, let's do until 10.30, Carlita. So that's uh, six or seven minutes, depending on where your clock is. And uh, I'll give you an instruction before the before you open your eyes. But look around on your page, wherever you are, you'll see 25 people. You'll see people you know, people you don't know. Uh, maybe you don't know anybody. Pick out somebody who you decide. Okay, look at all of the people. With your eyes open, think of something that you could say that you would also say for yourself as a blessing. Um, May you feel safe. May I feel safe. We'll start with ourselves. May I feel safe. May I feel peaceful. And may I feel happy. May I feel safe and peaceful and happy. And each time you breathe in, thinking about that person, but thinking about yourself as well, say for yourself, may I feel safe and happy and peaceful. And then say for the other person, may I feel safe, may you feel safe and happy and peaceful. If you have to open your eyes to remind yourself of the person, you can do that. Let's do that for eight minutes. Um, may I feel safe and happy and peaceful. And may you feel safe and happy and peaceful. On every breath, if you can, if it's too heady and you get overwhelmed by it you can do a quiet breath and then a blessing breath and a quiet breath and a blessing breath ready set go
go. Open your eyes. Who wants to say something about what their experience was like? <laughs> I, I, think, I think I should change my question to who will say something, not who wants to. <laughs> I, what I want to really ask you is what happened when you did that? Okay, three people, Tracy and Julie and Nancy. Go, Tracy. Yeah, I um yeah, my mind has just been like just all over the place and um the last few days having like my anxiety level just uh getting out of control and not knowing where it's coming from. But anyway, with this exercise, um I thought it was beautiful. Um, you know wishing that towards yourself and and towards others. Um, for me, I started feeling like connection to other people and outside starting to creep in so that I'm not like by myself in this anxiety. I'm in this world with other people. And then also, you know, the perfectionism a lot of people have is I'm still having thoughts come up, but, you know, I was able to say, you know, it's okay um, because I was having a positive experience and it won't always be perfect. Uh, the, the line, I'm sorry, crazy for butting in, but the that last line that you said, it won't always be like this. It won't always be perfect and it won't always be bad either. It, it's it, what, what it will always be is changing. That's what it always is. And right. That's one of the insights that that presumably, it's not presumably, it's true, that over time, for me, has made uh, my life just generally more comfortable when it's in an uncomfortable place uh, because uh, it's not going to last. It's not going to last. You, do, you don't say to that, of course, when I'm with someone who has just been bereaved, and is in agony about it. I don't say that this is going to pass because that would mean I didn't get the degree of agony that they're in. But it enables me to be with them while they're having this. It enables me to support them and stay with them because somehow not only do I know that their agony not going to, it's not ever going to be okay that whatever happened happened. It's always going to be a grievous thing. But it's not going to be an unbearable, grievous thing forever. It's going to be somehow, if they stay in life, it's by definition a bearable, grievous thing. And the thing fundamentally that we just wandered onto, because it's always there, is that's fundamentally the bottom line of wisdom, is knowing that this is all temporal. And all of us, no matter our situation in life, whether we are rich or poor or in a great robust health or in a not great robust health or living with ease or not so much living with ease, we all are living with the same truth of um, the ephemeral quality of life. We always think, well, tomorrow I'll do this or after that I'll do that. And you don't know anything about if there's going to be tomorrow or anything. I mean, the basic thing that the Buddha taught 
is the um, insubstantiality of our thoughts of future. We don't know. You know, that we, nobody lives forever, but we don't. We we are always imagining it's long from now, and for all our people too. We, it, I, what was I reading yesterday, where it said, you know, somehow we have in our minds the idea that our elders will depart before we do. That that's the order of things. They should they should go first. That what we don't want to have happen is that people who are dear to us who are not our elders do leave out of turn. That seems right, unright. That seems wrong. That everybody ought to be at the end of a long life. Uh, when my when my husband died, he was 89 years old. And I was sad that he was dying. I'd been with him for 65 years. But uh, yeah, I think that's about right, 65 years. So I, but I didn't imagine, you know, but it seemed kind of right to be at the end of 60. He was nearly 90. It doesn't seem right if it's someone who's young that a lot of other people are attached to. It doesn't seem right if it's all of a sudden and you didn't get time to get used to it. We have ways in which we could get used to, well, of course, over time. But maybe that every time we do a practice, that says, stay with this, stay with this, let your attention stay with this. We're building the ability of the mind to say, okay, this too, I can do this. I, I want to talk to Nancy a minute, but I want to write down here, concentration and insight. And what does that mean? But Nancy, what were you going to say, dear? I chose um, Jeff to be the person that I was wishing Meta to, because I know Jeff from our time together at the Wednesdays when we were actually meeting in person. And I had two, um, two reactions. One was I felt like a link in a chain in that I am wishing well for myself and wishing well for Jeff. Jeff is wishing well for himself and wishing well for someone else. And that person, and, and it just had a, a real sense of connection, which is just kind of the, the counter to the other sensation I had, which was um, I really miss being with people in person. I really miss the, the presence of being. And I just had the, the strongest urge to just wrap my arms around Jeff and hug him. And if I ever see him again, I certainly will do that. So it's, you know, it's some and some, you know, the joys and the sorrows. You know, uh, I love it that you said that. And I right, right away. Uh, oh, dear. <sighs> That's the, the hidden art before you get to be. Anyway, you have just discovered that one of the things that's true about me is I don't ever know that I'm going to sneeze in advance of sneezing. So I have developed the art of sneezing without sneezing. Anyway, <laughs> holding my nose without doing it. Anyway, I, I right away I went to look on my second page because Jeff has gone from my first page to my second page. So now I can see him. Now I'll go back. And it's not the same. You're right. Nancy. It's not the same. You're right. Uh, and we all feel peculiar. We, we're in a funny, not 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 humorous, 
a peculiar stage of getting used to being around other people. And I think it, I, I think that, um, just listening to somebody giving a talk the other day, but they, it was, it was uh, on the topic of we are general, we are genuinely herd animals. We lie down next to another animal. My, my grandson and his, uh, uh, fiance have adopted a, a dog and what they've had for a while and now a cat. And the cat sleeps on the dog. That's a very unusual thing to do, but I imagine that the cat is looking for another warm body to sit, to lie next to. And uh, they take pictures of it and send it to me. It's very cute. But we really want to lie next to somebody and give them a hug and be with someone and touch them, somebody, not us. I was at a place... I was I was at a big group meeting somewhere at one point. The, the, the whole context doesn't matter. But the people were sharing quite openly what was on their mind. And somebody began, maybe there were 30 people in the group, and somebody said, uh, you know, I want to be able to say, looking at the whole group, uh, I want to be able to say, as they were appreciating that group, uh, you know, I'm having trouble struggling with the situation that I've just told you that's in my that's come up in my life. And I want to be able to think that I could say to you, give me your hand. And I think she meant it metaphorically. And she put out her hand like this, give me your hand. And somebody sitting around her, not necessarily right next to her, I don't even remember, reached over and took her hand. And that person who took the hand said, you know, in my family, what's going on with me and and what I'd really want if I, is I want to be able to say, I'm going through this difficult patch. Give me your hand. And somebody got up and took her hand and said, in my life, I'm going through this difficult patch and said, I want to say, give me my, my hand. And people got up because that was a group that knew each other a little bit. From, it wasn't the first time they'd met. It wasn't much after that either. But I, I was so touched by it that people wanted to be able to say, you know, I'm the kind of, I also have things that hurt my heart. And people also wanted to say, I'm the kind of person who is prepared to take the high hand of someone who wants to, I, I, they didn't even, don't even remember what, I guess everybody said, uh, took the hand. And said, what I'm particularly worried these days is my son who's in college and uh, thinking about his nervous system is not sustaining him and maybe he has to drop out for the semester. And I really am upset and I wish somebody would hold my hand and somebody held their hand and said their thing. And nobody had the same thing, but everybody had both something that they could have used a hand for and everybody had the intention of being a hand holder. We could, without saying what your thing is, how many people have something that hurts their heart now that you could talk about? I mean, yeah, I'll start to cry, which would be all right. Because I think what it shows is that everybody has something that hurts their heart. And everybody who's here for sure wants to be a supporter. So that we want to put up your hand, you would take somebody's hand. Sure you would. I, 
I think we would. I don't think we would end up here in this class, in this group, if we didn't. So I said, wait a minute. I, I, but I was going to remember something. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you another effect. Well, I think the first effect of that last of that last experience, which was a variation on metta practice, wishing well for other people and wishing well for ourselves. The word metta uh, has two T's in it, not like um, Facebook is metta, but that is one T. Metta with two T's. The word is a, uh, it comes from uh, the Pali or Sanskrit, and its derivation is friend. So it means really friendship practice, and it means befriending yourself and befriending others. And if, if people ask me, as they do sometimes, maybe I've told you, somebody asked me in a, in a, it's a whole story about, it was with some graduate students at UC Berkeley. And, um, I was uh, visiting in a class being taught by a friend of mine. And uh, talking about mindfulness practice and doing it. And I think because I'm old, uh, somebody, the class was mostly people in their, I judged mostly people in their middle, late 20s, they graduate students, uh, at the beginning of careers. And they all had careers that were activist careers. They were working with organizations that, made good social changes in the community. And uh, I, I was I was quite touched. Somebody said, uh, they didn't say at your age, but um, it had it in it. They said, why are you practicing? Because I talked about them in the beginning of their young lives to, uh, without like stressing that, that they go out and make big social changes in the world. That's a formidable uh, aspiration. So I, you know, I'm talking about it would be very good if they had a practice to soothe and bolster their own mind. And talking about mindfulness as a soother and a bolster of the mind. And uh, one person in the class said, um, why are you practicing mindfulness? And uh, I'm filling in the blanks, like why at your age, you don't have to have a whole career to gird yourself up to do now you're at the end of your career. So why are you practicing? And I said, I want to have a mind like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And that's that's my job in this life. And you don't get finished with that. Does anybody want to say, what's Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? What does that mean? Tell me a definition of uh, a mind like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. More than one. Who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? You just have to push the respond button. Who knows what Mr. Rogers' name? Oh, they. Oh, well, there's Victoria. Go. Oh, Sharon. Let's let Karen. Let's let Carolyn go first. Victoria. Okay, Carolyn, go. Briefly, profoundly, kind. 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 Kindness. Kind. I'd like to be kind. I am, when I told my husband, he said, uh, what has changed with you, Phil, now that you've been practicing this 40 years, 45? 
I said, I became kind. And he said, you were always kind, so. And I said, I became kinder. And I did. How many people here? There's Nancy. She's a long practitioner. Did you become kinder, Nancy? Nancy. <laughs> here I am. It, it, assuming there's only one Nancy here <laughs> that you were addressing me. Um, yes, I really do believe after years and years of practice, I have become kinder. Um, and if not able to be kind in the moment, I can go back and fix the things that I've messed up. <laughs> do you feel happy about the dumb? But, uh, do you feel happy about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm a cup half full person, definitely. You're a what? A cup half full. I'm, you know, Pollyanna, optimistic, bright eyed. That's me. Uh, but uh, but that's that's actually fabulous. I also want to suggest that people who are pessimistic, out of compassion for themselves and their pessimism, get kinder. How many people here think they're pessimistic? Pessimistic. Anna, Victoria, Jeff. What do you want to say, Jeff? I was just answering that I am pessimistic. Uh, um, you know, it's the old, it's the old thing about uh, uh, the uh, Zen thing about your life is like a boat that you sail out to the middle of the ocean and it sinks. Um, you know, there's sometimes there's a storm and sometimes there's fair weather, yeah. but we all know that there's a mystery waiting for us. And um, particularly on this day, with the recent events that are in the news here close to us and far away, it's hard for me to see uh, the upside of it all. Um, I'll figure it out. I won't, I won't walk around grouchy and in a mood, um, but uh, the Mr. Rogers neighborhood thing, um, in addition to being more kind, which I, I agree is one, one result of practice, yeah, there is a certain amount of calmness. Like I can feel bad about something without clutching the feeling bad. And I can go on for another period of time. And as you mentioned, it's all temporary anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, even though it doesn't seem so sometimes, it's all temporary anyway. Yeah. It's beautiful to see everybody. And Nancy Winninger is a wonderful person. I just want you guys to know. <laughs> That's lovely. Uh, I'm going to say it. <laughs> now, that, that was just lovely to leave it. When you said it's going to change and be different, I don't have to do it now. So the last line of Gone with the Wind by Margaret Mitchell, which was a best-selling book 50, 60, 70 years ago. And, you know, it was a Civil War book and whatever. But the last line of that, is Scarlett O'Hara saying, I'll think about it tomorrow. Uh, so <laughs> let's, uh, but you know, I want to tell you, that, uh, all of you, that one of the effects of doing this, of focusing the attention, because I definitely am focused when I'm here, and uh, really trying to repeat a certain phrase over and over for eight minutes or three minutes or 10 minutes, really has the effect of clearing the mind and allowing for a different 
things to um, um, present themselves that weren't available before. This is a good time to talk about why are we doing this whole thing, not to be good meditators, but to actually to develop insight and um So this is a nice time. I'll be a little bit didactic. There's two different kinds of insights. Uh, people who uh, uh, are in therapy or who are psychotherapists talk about uh, uh, you come to a therapist and you talk about da-da-da. You just talk about whatever is on your mind or what they suggest you think about or talk about. And at different times, people might say, I had the insight. That because my uh, this or that parent had was uh, addicted to alcohol, or this or that parent uh, had a very poor self-esteem, or this or that grandparent, or this or that happened to me, or because we lived X, or because we lived Y, or because we lived in uh, 2001, whatever it is that I'm the way I am now. They An insight had to do with something happened to me in this life that caused, that had a significant effect on the kind of person that I am. And now that I see that that was caused by that, my mother, my father, my next door neighbor, or somebody, that uh, that may have been a bad thing, a, a seriously unhappy, uncomfortable thing, uh, but I don't have to be held cop- captive by it forever. Uh, I can start now and do things another way. It's a kind of insight into the links between my early life, the habits of mind that that put in me, and the person I am now. A very good friend of mine, not in this group this morning, uh, so <laughs> I'm about to say, and I've told this story about her, so it's okay. Uh, in rooms where she's been present, was was on a certain retreat uh, over a period of time at Spirit Rock, maybe ten day retreat. And you may you may not, if you've never been to Spirit Rock, know that uh, as you approach the big doors to the main meditation hall on the top of the hill that they're glass and you can see yourself, your reflection in the glass. And she'd been there for a period of time, was not her first time on retreat. She was a a seasoned retreater and she had a a good ability to really calm down the mind, which is what you do when you say, let's just do one thing. Let's just do one thing. Let's just do one thing. The mind calms down and other extraneous voices don't impinge on your mind and confuse you. And she said to me, we met for a teacher-student meeting. She said, I was walking up to the meditation hall yesterday, and here it is the seventh day, and I'm pretty feeling pretty calm and focused, and I saw my image in the uh, in the door, and I had the thought, I don't have bowed legs. Could have been that, or I do not have it's one or the other. I don't have both legs. And she said, That's a response that's, you know, I all of a sudden thought that out of the blue. And I realized that my mother years ago 
criticized me. She said I had bowed legs. I did not have attractive legs. I walked wrong. My legs were bowed. As a matter of fact, she criticized most things about me. She said, but yesterday I was walking up and I looked and I said, I don't have bowed legs. As a matter of fact, for a middle-aged woman, I look pretty good. And I just saw that. And I felt astonished by it. And even as I'm telling it to you now, it's a really good story because you could look at it yourself. I mean, if she's midlife, she's been looking at her legs for a long time, but not knowing that she sees them one way or she sees them as unattractive because of a voice lodged in her mind. And she said, I don't have to think that, but, you know, I don't. I'm a pretty nice looking, I have a pretty nice looking body for a middle-aged woman. But we have all kinds of imprints in our mind because someone told us this or someone told us that. And then it's in there and it gets unquestioned. And then you say, wait a minute, that's not true. I'm thinking that because of that. So that could be, that would be something that you call an insight. I think this way. Uh, that must have been the same retreat where uh, somebody else was a retreat. Well, probably wasn't at Spirit Rock because I remember sitting at a round table with people. And we, anyway, it was maybe it was the end of retreats and people were sitting and having a lunch sitting around. And somebody said to somebody, you know, I've been watching you all through that this retreat and I noticed that you never eat green vegetables or you never eat vegetables or green vegetables, one or the other. You know, when you don't talk on retreat, you have nothing to do other than look at the people around you and see what they eat and what they don't eat and how much they eat and how little they eat. So I noticed that you don't eat green vegetables. Uh, and the person who didn't eat the vegetables said, yes, I remember when I was a child, uh, my mother used to force me to eat green vegetables. And I just rebelled against it. I refused, and I'm still refusing. And what, what, what happened after that? So the person who asked the question, you know, the person said, my mother used to force me to eat green vegetables. And the questioner said, that was a long time ago. You know, when your mother said, apparently forced you. And somebody else said, maybe the real story is you never really liked green vegetables. But, you know, we don't question, don't eat green vegetables, I don't like green vegetables, this one, my next door neighbor, cauliflower, whatever it is. But we have so many stories that are unquestioned. And so you have an insight about why I have this habit or that habit. And sometimes it's a, sometimes they're not even bad habits to have, but they're a habit that somebody had that you admired that made you feel good. But then you say, oh, yeah, no, I always do that. Because my my uncle did that same thing. And, uh, you know, it gets me a lot of points. People like me because of that habit. But the whole point of, of that insight is that, that kind of psychological insight. It's, it's a fact. The mother, the mother did call this or that. Mother did say about the vegetables, did say about the bowed legs. And they're seeing that, say, oh, I see why I do that. And then you can make some change and not do it anymore. That's not the Buddhist definition of insight, which is what I was getting around to. The Buddhist definition of insight 
is really an insight into how the world works. And it's the insight that the world works on, th on three principles are always true. Never mind who said what, about whom. And the three things that are always true is everything is temporal. Everything has a shelf life. Everything that comes into being goes out of being. What's that? What's the arcane way? The last line, the next to the last line, the Buddha said before he died: "Are transient, are all conditioned things. Move into the future with confidence," is what he said. Transient are all conditioned things, which means everything that's that you like us. This is a conditioned thing. This got made because my parents liked each other. Or, not necessarily in all cases, but they liked each other enough to make a family. And I'm that. And they're who they were because other people conditioned them and other people conditioned them all the way back to the beginning of time. The school year begins and it ends. I have great-grandchildren that are two months old. One who's two months old who a year ago wasn't visible and just knew about, but now he's two months old and he's large as life. And he's a big guy. And in his life, he's going to probably be a big guy. And it, for all of his life, everything conditioned is conditioned by something and it leaves conditions that all affect other people. And it's very mysterious because how this and that So everything is everything is temporal. When people say, "I, I'm, I really, I'll get through this because I know I'm, everything passes," but that's really a, a that's an amount of wisdom. I suppose that you could have wisdom that's not pseudo wisdom. You could say, "Well, everything passes. I'll be all right," and really not be all right because you're afraid of the feeling. But everything passes, really. Even the fear of the even somebody in a class once corrected me in the middle of my teaching. They were right. Uh, I was talking about this very thing. I said, uh, I always, if I tell this story, I, if I find myself telling the story, I always get to get to say. Um, it's a long time ago. I would never say this now. Uh, I was talking about everything passes. And I said, sometimes really terrible things happen to people. But eventually, the pain of it passes. And somebody said, you're wrong. There are some things that happened to me in my life that will never pass. And I really stood corrected about it. I'm, I think the thing has passed. But what they mean is I will be in terrible pain from this thing forever. And it's not for me to decide how long people should be in terrible pain about anything. And it actually, it was insensitive of me to say a thing like that. Because there's bound to be someone in the room who has not gotten over something terrible. So I would never say it now. I hope I didn't say it today in this talk. That um, 
There are some pains and some losses that stay in the mind forever, forever in our lives, till we till we die or till we forget them. And I think that was from being too young and not really allowing my, myself to know the depth of pain that people could feel. I don't know. But the three things that account as insights in the Buddha's psychology were insight about impermanence. That's that one. Insight about suffering, which is different. Uh, connected to the fact that everything passes. But suffering, uh, we, we it's not well translated um, from uh, suffering is of, of a, is a different word in English than what I think dukkha really means. Uh, dukkha means the uh, or the profound meaning that I think the Buddha means is the extra pain that we put on situations that happen to us that come up because we don't know how to deal with them really or we haven't got the capacity to deal with them or we deal with them ineptly. Somebody does something and uh, the response is, I am never going to forgive you for as long as I live. That is the extra pain of tying your mind in a knot over something that somebody else did. That The, the pain of revenge, the pain of non-forgiveness. You lock your mind in a jail forever. The pain of responding without being thoughtful and causing more pain. It's the extra pain that didn't have to be caused, but got caused because of a lack of wisdom. That's a better way to say it. Because we always make mistakes with that. But uh, the extra pain of adding on to something that is painful, um, an inept response. And the third thing that the Buddha said you needed to know was that everything is in tandem unfolding with everything else, that that every single thing that happens to us uh, affects what's in our proximal life. Something happens to me. My family will be affected by it, my children, my grandchildren, my friends. But past them, and in every one of them, People are emerging, people are passing away, things are happening, things are happening. We are, there's nothing permanent about this that's going to go on in another life. This is, this is its lifetime and it affects all of us that we meet. And they affect everybody else and they affect everybody else. Sometimes I, uh, go through a whole long, uh, how I happen to be here now is because once upon a time, the the geopolitical scene in Europe changed and immigrate, uh, groups of Jews emigrated from uh, the Middle East to Europe. But then it goes, going back to geopolitical history of uh, several centuries ago, and some went here, and some went there, and some went there, all the way down to singular histories 
and some people from uh, uh, Austria came to New York and some other people from Poland came to New York and some of those people uh, had uh, a small son and other ones had a small daughter and the small son and daughter met each other and liked each other and made me so that you could say my my whole uh, life is intertwined with uh, the changing geopolitical situations that caused emigrations, immigrations in the Middle East centuries ago, that everybody's life is consequential, is what that means. Everything counts. There are two, uh, is this getting too pedantic? Are you bored or is this interesting? <laughs> Carlita, what do you think? Too pedantic? I'm unmuting myself, not at all, Sylvia. Okay. <laughs> all right, we'll stop. That's the poll I'm going to take. All right. Uh, everything is always happening. I used to have a great uh, uh, poster on the wall. It was blown up from uh, from the New Yorker. And uh, it was a poster. Of, it was a picture, a drawing, a cartoon of a long um, uh, treadmill and in a room and uh, taking. A, and on this side of the room was a door. And it said entrance over it. So people coming in in the entrance. And there's a door over here on the other side. And it says exit. And the treadmill goes from the entrance to the exit. And there are people on the treadmill. And you see at the beginning end of the treadmill, there's babies crawling up on, coming in the door and crawling onto the treadmill. And then standing up, 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 up. And then you see People all along getting to the zenith of their height and then smaller, 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 and then leaning, uh, holding on and then having a cane and walking out the exit door. And that's all it's got. And it's got a sign on the back wall that says no loitering. So is that terrible, creepy, or is that funny? <laughs> Lisa Marie is laughing, so now you have to say why it's funny. You have to push your... Uh, well, I, I think it's both. I mean, it's that's what makes... Maybe that's what makes it so funny is that it's the horrible truth that it's both. Yeah. The horrible, terrible, funny truth that it's both. It's both. That's it. We're, here we are. And you could say, like horrible, it is true that this is a this is um this is it. Um uh, I had a friend once who said he's not living anymore. He used to say if you came to a if you wanted to be in a planet where that wasn't true, that everything is a temporal and that we often inadvertently complicate our situations and make them suffering, and that we are inextricably linked with everything else that's happening. There was terrible news in Oakland yesterday, and there's terrible news in California in three days. All kinds, there's been three incidents of mass shootings, and people are frightened and This person said to me a long time ago, if you wanted to come to, uh, if you wanted to be in a world that where 
it wasn't true that there is old age, sickness, and death, and you never know what, when. Then you came to the wrong planet. So that's it. I mean, the Buddha said it more elegantly. He didn't say he came to the wrong planet. But he did say, this is what's true, old age, sickness, and death. And the only thing we can really do that's redemptive about that, you tell me. What's the only thing you can do? I'll tell you. Oh, Victoria was about to. What were you going to say, Victoria? No? Oh, I I didn't raise my hand, but... um... Well, I, I always quote you constantly. Um, I just quoted you yesterday in another event. <laughs> um, the sign on your first retreat. Um, there's if so much is difficult in life, um, how can we be anything other than kind? That's exactly that's exactly it. That com- kindness and compassion is the only redemptive move. Uh, you know, that's the only redemptive move. Because when we are kind. And as if and motivated, they're really components of the same thing. I think compassion is what motivates kindness, really. That compassion, you know, kindness shows out because we think, whoa, this person, I mean, from the simplest thing, someone is uh, about to open a heavy door on the bank and you can just open it for them. So it's not like a compassion. But, you know, there's a there's something that someone needs to do. I can help them. I can help them. That I think the uh, the most, is this fair to say? I'm just blurting it out. That the most redemptive thing we can do is to say, how can I help? But as soon as I say to somebody, how can I help? It lets, it lets me know that my heart has been involved in somebody else's story. So I'm not alone. And I am for that moment connected to somebody. And that I just surprisingly said that. I didn't have it right written down. But I, but that's true that every single time that we say, oh, let me get that door for you. Or, oh, uh, I'll close the window. I say, oh, there's Tamara. Tamara. Go. I have to unmute myself. I forgot to. <laughs> um Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to be here today and will be attending each Wednesday. I live in Half Moon Bay and I happen to be, to be, oh, it makes me teary. I happen to be walking at the time that happened just a half a mile away and was going to stop at the, my coffee shop on the way home where they caught the shooter, but I had had a thought just go straight home. Last night I went out walking um, and it was amazing. It's such a close-knit community and so devastating. I live right, you know, um, by the ocean here. But it was amazing last night. I walk up Poplar Beach just on that path above the ocean right by where that second shooting was. And um, there were so many people on the path last night and probably triple the normal people I see. And people kept stopping and we'd say hi to each other. We would... Um, you know, um, two women separately stopped me and they said, we're not going to let this stop us. We're going to, I'll be here to support. And when I went to Pete's Coffee, just on the corner this morning, the Swiss chocolate place is closed. It's all, it's amazing. I go there every day and that's where the farmer's market is. And it's such a safe place normally. It's so unnerving to our community, but yet I see extra people out just saying hi. And um, 
I don't know, I think of what you're, you're teaching. And I just am so grateful because just the kindness, just the hello, just getting out to support and let people know that we're here and love each other. And, you know, I think there's, it's, it's really touching, you know, especially at a time like this, but it, it made me want to, you know, I I got up early, I, I did my walking meditation and um, this morning, just to be out, out and about to let people know we're not afraid and, and we're here for each other. So. Um, so first of all, thank you very much for saying that. Okay. I also, I also noticed that you stopped on, on the operative phrase, we're here for each other. Um, I think that's what human beings are here for each other. We're not like solitary beings. I mean, we're, 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 we look for someone to say, give me your hand, walk with me. I'm so sorry about Half Moon Bay and everybody else. Thank you. Laurel. So for me, that's the quality that's so profound about Mr. Rogers' neighborhood and living in that is that sense of connection. And I wanted to say, Tamara, that, you know, that sounds corny, but I still feel that it's true that, you know, where you are, Half Moon Bay, you're you're in my neighborhood and, you know, my heart is with you. And that's all. Thank you very much. And Jeff's in Oakland. I I just wanted to put my heart out there for Tamara and, and your and your community. Um, and you reminded me of something I try to think of when I'm faced with the things that I've talked about before. The, the fact that there's wars always going on uh, and so on. Um, a friend of mine uh, who lives in Boston. Uh, told me the story of when the Boston uh, Marathon bomber thing occurred. People who live in Boston uh, leave town on Marathon Day because it's so crowded and the streets are closed and it's all jammed up. And um, when the news, excuse me, when the news of the bombing hit the uh, airwaves, there were literally traffic jams of people trying to get back downtown to help. Every doctor, every EMT, every cop, <clears throat> the restaurants opened their doors and served food for free to anybody that, that came in to help. The blood drive, there was a, you know, the blood bank was overrun with people wanting. And what for me, the point of the story is the tragedy is inevitable. A calamity is always coming. But watch closely and you just see the flood of helpers arriving. And uh, it can restore some faith in humanity. Thanks for letting me talk. Thank you. Robert. Uh, good morning, everyone. 
Um, ditto, the, ditto the earlier comments uh, about the misfortune in Half Moon. Um, you know, the, the stories remind me of, of what it was like in New York City after 9-11 when, you know, there was a period of a month or two where people were really, really kind to each other. Um, it was so unusual. And then that eventually, you know, kind of uh, seeped out of the system. And then my personal experience is that I, I returned from uh, a retreat at Spirit Rock a few weeks ago. And I mean, my first retreat away and I came back, I was the kindest person I ever was. And um, it's been really interesting for me to watch how like almost on a daily basis as I'm exposed to life and all of its insanity, that each day it seems like a little bit slips away, a little bit slips away. And what used to be on my mind all the time went to some of the time. And I, I still have retained a great amount. I can't, I don't think one could ever expect to to maintain that level of of intensity and focus. But it's been it's been challenging for me to 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 experience it seeping out. Yeah. I'm very, very happy that you spoke about this, Robert, because I think in the moment, uh, I remember that time when at, at 9-11, when uh, people were telling me people were talking to each other in elevators and, you know, people who had ridden in the same elevator in the same building for years without saying hello, suddenly said hello. It's like it startles you into waking up and you say, whoa, you know, you just never know. You just never know. And it's all so tenuous. And, uh, you know, there but for the grace of God or whatever. But the not just that and think, ah, eek, but that, that, and then to make each moment count, which is what kindness is. as a way. Here I am with somebody that I can do something for. I'm doing it, you know, that, because it, the, you have such a, a, a near memory of I felt better when I did that connected with somebody and when like when you're at spirit rock for a while and you eat with people and you sit with people and they become dear to you and you have no idea who they are especially because you don't talk to them <laughs> and but they but you get the message that everybody counts and that lives are precious lives are precious and they matter i'm gonna write that down for myself because lives are precious Sometimes people think, well, you know, that maybe there wasn't, okay, never mind. I'm not going to do a long thing on that, but lives are precious. And the most satisfying thing that a person can do is help somebody else. I I, I had, for weeks, I had a little piece of paper here that started out by saying, the principal beneficiary of every moment of kindness is oneself. You know, that, uh, you know, in a certain way, maybe it's not the principal beneficiary, uh, but it's definitely ourselves, uh, at least in there. I mean, you may take some care of yourself. If you're an EMT, the principal beneficiary is maybe you, you save a person from dying or that. But but that you were interested in somebody else's well-being. I actually even see it sometimes as a kind of a structural thing, like I can get my mind all connected into me personally. But if I if I look at, oh, there's somebody, at least I put down my story, which is boring and irritating and 
I've heard it too much already and look at somebody else's story and feel like I made a difference there. So thank you very much, Robert. I'm glad you were here. I'm glad you are you back in New York? Uh, no, I, I, I moved out uh, in Arizona like 15 years ago, but um, I was there that day. And so I remember the kindness. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for being here. Uh, Rivka. Well, you know, it's interesting because so many spiritual and religious practices all advocate, like when they asked the Dalai Lama and the Lubavitcher rabbi had the same um, answer, like, what do you do in times of chaos and by violence you don't know what to do and they say you do more acts of loving kindness and shift the universe in that way and mm -hmm. i was thinking about my mother who was always to me this kind of embarrassing new york jewish crazy old lady but she would get in an elevator she would talk to the people in the elevator she would talk to the elevator operator she would talk in her retirement hotel she talked to the person washing the floors fixing the air conditioner and i and she treated everybody like a human being and I'm a doctor, and it turned out one or two times somebody had a patient that I took care of at, a kid who I took care of at the hospital. And she always taught me, and this was her message, you know, it doesn't cost anything to be kind. And it was, it was really like a spiritual message that I, I hold today, like, you know, the little opening the door for someone, saying hello, acknowledging someone else as another human being. She didn't need any religious instruction and it was just lovely it doesn't cost anything to be kind no, it doesn't cost anything to be kind and it means and really on the elevator i realized that the other day uh it was a happy day i was on a happy day with good weather i was at the symphony it was a great performance and i was retrieving my car in the parking lot I get in the elevator and there's eight people standing and, nobody, and clearly they've all come from across the street. And we've heard the same symphony. Nobody is saying anything. I get in and the door is closing. And I said, that was great, wasn't it? And they suddenly all come to life. <laughs> but why not? I also come, Rufka, from a woman, from a mother who taught my father was hugely embarrassed because she talked to everybody. She talked to the person sitting next to her on the subway. She said, if it moves, she talks to it. So uh, I, I inherited that from her. All right, here we are. Julie, were you having your hand up? Because, no, Julie didn't have the hand up. Uh, okay. Uh, Barbara does. Hi, Sylvia. I'm a, I'm a little off topic, but I think I'm on topic enough. Can you hear me okay? Yes, of course. Um, so I have a question for you because it's kind of been there for a long time. So I once held a door for someone with crutches and the person got mad at me. And I knew this person and I think they just wanted to be independent. And it still carries with me. So just you saying, you know, what, something that's unforgiven. And it just really was hurtful, actually, the way they responded. So sometimes when we intend or a kind act, sometimes it's not received that way. Can, would you say something about that? Because I'm just wanting to hear your wisdom this morning. 
<laughs> Any <But> thoughts? <laughs> I do. I do. Actually, I'll tell you a story. Uh, so it's not about a terrible thing. So we've been talking about some terrible things. So yeah. this, is, this is a fun story. Um, it happened a long time ago. I was uh, I was with my, my friend, uh, my very good friend, Martha, now long not of this world anymore. And um, we were in a restaurant and I went to the ladies room at some point and uh, looking in the mirror, washing my hands. Um, I saw a woman next to me uh, reach out, a taller woman, and I saw her take her hands and reach back as if there were like a, sometimes people have pin up their hair and they have a comb in it or it holds it up. And I saw her take out like a, a, a pin or comb that was holding it together and her hair all poofed out, you know, she was really, and she shook her hair and it all came out beautiful. And it looked like what I used to call years ago, Farrah Fawcett hair. Do you remember Farrah Fawcett? Because now if I say Farrah Fawcett hair, the young people don't know whose hair and what Farrah Fawcett was. But she was an actress and she had beautiful big hair. Shook it out and I said, oh, you have really beautiful hair. And she looked at me and she said, well, if it makes you feel any better, I'm not at all happy. Said, oh dear, you know, was quite taken aback. So I leave and I go back to my table and I say to my friend Martha, you can't believe, you know, tell you what just happened. I here was this woman poof, the whole story. And uh I felt really bad. Uh, you know, I her I really meet her, her feelings, nothing. Uh, so, and Martha, who was ever my defendant and, uh, ever, she said, that was really not right. You should, you should have said to her that I meant it as a comment. Anyway, I didn't. But then I thought to myself, you know, I, <laughs> she said, I'll go tell her that, oh, I'm feeling about that. I said, maybe it wasn't the right time. Maybe five minutes before she had just broken a 20 year sobriety pledge. Maybe a half hour before she had uh, gotten fired for her job. Uh, maybe, uh, who knows what was going on in her when I did that. So Martha said, calm down. And then I said, you know, well, maybe I should have, uh, maybe I shouldn't do that anymore. Maybe it's not my business. Someone's standing in a public lady's room combing their hair. It's not my business to comment on it. So I started in the next several days to ask my friends, what do you think? Should I have said something to this person? She really had beautiful hair. Or am you know, I just getting like my mother talking to people on the Brighton Transit line and you know, talk to everybody? Maybe I shouldn't. And I, everybody said, well, you meant well, this back forth, the other. And then my friend John said the best thing. He said, he said, your intention was good, and you never know. You know, maybe it was just a compliment. You never know. Maybe she really just has had a hard day. Her partner just broke up with her. She lost her job. She broke the sobriety. You don't know what happened five minutes before you made that comment about the hair. But she heard the comment about the hair. And maybe a few months from now, when she's in a different mind state, 
She'll be looking at herself in a mirror and she'll suddenly think, you know, you really have beautiful hair. A woman I don't know at all was looking at me and she said, you have beautiful hair. And maybe she'll be of a, of a mood to hear it at that point. And maybe it'll make her feel good at that point. So I thought to myself, well, I must have thought to myself, first of all, do you ever think about, I say that all the time. And every time I say it, I correct myself. How else could I think to? And you say, I thought to myself. Of course I thought to myself. Who could I think to? It's a thought because I thought it to myself. <laughs> but I do it anyway. But, and what he said is, was what was the intention in your heart? My intention was to flatter her and to thank her for being so pretty. And so it didn't fall on the right ears at that point. But my intention was kind. And I think, and I still talk to practically everything that moves. So, and I did in the in the elevator the other day after the symphony. And everybody woke up. I said, wasn't that great? Oh, Bill. Okay, I found the mute button. Uh, I just put in the chat about what Barbara was saying, and I had a similar experience, and um, I was a bit confused. And what Barbara had said really brought some, another thought. Uh, first off, thank you, Barbara, for that, because it really brought this other quote that I read about the Dalai Lama, which really helped me. It's, it's helping me react to it where he said, our actions should not ultimately be measured by their success or failure, but by the motivations behind them. So that really sat with me now in thinking that I'm glad I did what I did, even if the outcome was not successful, but it was my motivations behind them. I think I, I, I just want to not put that down so fast because I want to think about um, the, how how much a good habit that is to contemplate to have. Not that I always have it, but to be thinking every moment: what's my intention? And if my, if my um, oh oh. What? Somebody, not me. Okay. Uh, if my intention is not good, then it's not going to come out well. If my, if I would, oh, I'm just suddenly thinking about if I were to in the beginning of every day. I do get up in the morning and sit a little bit every day. Uh, the the little bit varies depending on what a day it is and um, what uh, what else I'm doing. Not like the woman as I wrap myself in a quilt, but it doesn't matter. I sit down as if to say, okay, now I'm doing the day. And I sit for some amount of time, which varies from day to day. But sometimes I think about what I'm going to do during the day. And sometimes I think to myself, I hope I do it all in a way that's good for everybody. And so I, I, I think if, if, but I'm sure we all do. Even if we don't sit down and say that out loud to ourselves, we don't, or in our minds, we don't think, mm, whose life could I mess up to? I mean, we don't. 
uh, and mostly not our own. Whose life could I mess up today? Whose feelings could I hurt? I mean, we wouldn't be here. This is a self-selecting group of people who don't like to hurt feelings and people who have sensitivities about feelings. Susan is wanting to say something, but I don't see you, Susan. Where are you? Hi. There you are. Put Can your, you hear me okay? My internet. I can hear you, but put your camera a little lower because you're just making it into the screen. Put your whole face in the mirror, in the screen, if you can. And if you oh, can, my face is on the screen? Oh, it should be. Okay, I'm on my telephone. Okay, so I'm calling in from Berlin, Germany. Um, This is where I'm living, and I'm half German. And um, so I'm kind of looking at it from the other perspective. Berlin can sometimes be a bit of a tough city. Um, And um, I made a new friend, and I spent a lot of time with her, and the last there was a lot of criticism and judgment and blame put in my direction and I felt so hurt (laughs) so um yeah just very sad but also there there was also a lot of just felt very upset about it and I haven't been able to talk to her about it since then because I almost don't know what to do when someone's that when there's so much um, you know, when I try to be really kind and the other person just keeps criticizing and blaming and you just keep like trying to understand and um, and then you notice, I notice my whole nervous system just is unable to to really take in so much. Also, I think because of my past history and dealing with chronic illness and so forth, I need to be careful. And so I know what to do in this situation part of me is like I should talk to her another part's like I don't actually want to have any more connection with this person I've dealt with enough difficult people in my life who have been a lot of blame who have put a lot of a lot of blame judgment criticism yeah so I'm not sure what to do like on the other hand I want to be kind I'm I'm sure you do so I'm wondering if you have some wisdom Oh, sorry. No, no. I'm, I'm just, I'm just thinking that I, I wish I had a better wisdom than this. And the wisdom I'm going to give you is that, um, and we're at a distance, and I don't know you very well. But I think if we were close, and I did know you well, if you say, you know, for when I'm with a certain person, I end up not feeling good about myself, and I end up feeling hurt. So it's not good for me. I'd like to have connections because I want to have friends. I'm. But maybe not this one. And maybe the kindest thing for you as well as for her is to say, listen, I, th- I had hoped we were going to be friends. but And maybe it's just something in our communication skills. But I feel I feel very criticized by you. And maybe it's just not I'm not understanding your English or something. Maybe we shouldn't be friends with each other. Although I had hoped we would. Because, you know, we really don't know why. Maybe they didn't mean what they what we think they meant. But, or maybe they have a style of communicating that is just not wholesome for your body to be part of. Does that make any sense to you? 
I think that uh, Susan's computer is not working so well. Anyway, I I I hope that was helpful, and I hope you stay well there, Rivka. One thought that came to me for Susan was: this is the kind of difficult person you want to practice metaphor, meta, the meta practice. May you be safe. May you be healthy. And try to wish her well and see if that changes your heart. But I was also thinking of the crutch story. And I was something I learned recently. For people who are caretakers, I assume a lot of people here are always trying to help and be a caretaker. And, you know, when somebody dies, you want to bring, you know, in the family and you want to bring meals over and you show up with a meal and they say, oh, we don't eat meat or we're vegan. And so you sometimes you have to ask how you can be helpful rather than assume this is how I can be helpful and this is what they need. And even I've learned maybe I'm a, I'm a door opener for other people, but sometimes I ask, do you need help? Can I open the door for you? But I think it's for me, 99% of the time people want the door open, but, but the, sometimes we have to, can't assume that how we want to help someone is how they need the help they need. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I, I've learned that in my life too, that um, even in our own family, my husband started sending fruit to my son who was sick. He goes, no, I don't want that. And so you, know, you have to like, because you keep, you know, fruit of the month. And you go, oh, how's it nice? No, I don't want it. But he wanted a corned beef sandwich. So anyway, so, you know, what you have to ask, how can I help you? What is it you need? Or can I open the door for you? Even though it's harder. But 99% of the time, people want the door open. How can I help this good thing? Yeah, how can it help? Uh, Victoria. Um, well, I, yeah, I, I really appreciate what Rifka just said. I've I've um, had in my family and in my circle of friends a, a lot of people who are disabled and um, in various um, various kinds of disability. And I know that for them, what is the most important is that they be seen as this as the same. I mean, the same, you know, they 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 have a sense their dignity is more important to them than um, than actually being assisted. And so it's kind of paradoxical in a certain way, because those of us who are able-bodied want to just jump in and be of assistance. But what they want is not to be treated as someone other. They, they want to somehow be part of the group. And so I think the, um, I mean, I don't want to read into the crutches story that was shared, but but my own experience has been that, um, I mean, my, my, my roommate from college um, has uh, acute multiple sclerosis, and now she can't move anything except her, her head. She can still talk, thank God, but the rest of her body is completely paralyzed. And she never wants to talk about it, and she never wants to be treated specially. She has her caregivers, of course, but she wants, when she and I relate, she wants to be the same person that I knew back in college. And that was my roommate. So it's that sense of where the dignity of spirit is is mo- most important. You know, I'm, I'm very touched by that. I, I think I told this. I don't remember if I told. Uh, uh, remind me, Nancy or Jeff, somebody who's always here. What did I tell about my first experience with having a wheelchair in an airport? Did I tell that the last time? Oh, oh, Jeff says I told. I told that. What? <laughs> no, Rifka said no. 
All right, it's a it's a it's, it's a ways back. It's not within the very recent past, but I do recall the story. Please go ahead and tell it this time, though. Okay, so a very short story. I just came back from uh, six weeks away in South America and Ecuador, visiting family in there and in Philadelphia and in New York. And uh, when I the most of those uh, on the return trip, I was flying by myself, and people said. Uh, you're flying by yourself, you know, recognizing I'm old. I said, no, the plane is flying by itself. I just have to get on it and sit down. So that, you know, sort of making a joke out of the fact that they're really meaning you're flying by yourself without any personal aid. But I would really, uh, you know, sort of trying to avoid that. But the thing is, I did come with personal aid because when you come to the airport, I love it. I'm a, but I learned something and I learned something. Come to the airport. I've got all my stuff. I get my boarding pass and then I put my suitcase and I say, pass it in and I say, and I need a wheelchair. So first of all, for anybody who doesn't know, they don't ask you why. And I'm standing on my two feet and I don't have crutches. So, but they do not ask you just if you have that in your mind. And, uh, I could make it to the gate. I can walk. In this particular case, the the uh, I had asked, I would have done it anyway. It doesn't matter. The uh, boarding gate was way, way a long way from the front. I would have had to stand on that line that goes through the security and then go. I had a handbag, a hand luggage. That, so that's number one. It's available. And some very nice person came immediately with a wheelchair and wheeled me and stopped me so I could go in the restroom and stopped me so I could get a newspaper. And anyway, while we were in line at customs, I was actually worried about how will I make it in a few minutes from the arriving plane through getting my luggage, through putting it through customs, through getting to the next gate. For the takeoff, which is less than two hours later, maybe I'd be. Anyway, somebody there getting me through separate gates. And when we we're in the customs, you know, where people go on a gate uh, in a line that goes this way, this way, this way, this way, and finally up to a customs agent. So there's separate lines for the people in wheelchairs. So I'm sitting in my wheelchair and looking from this level. So it's a halfway up level. And uh, I actually had my camera, so I took pictures because from this level, you don't see what the customs hall or what the passport office looks like from up here. It's a different look, and it's a look through the bars, or through the, through here, through there. And I can I could see because the wheelchairs are going back and forth in those crisscross lines too, that there's a whole community out there flying who needs wheelchairs. And I thought to myself, look at that. There's a whole community that the people standing upright don't see. There's a whole community of people with a degree of disability that everybody doesn't see. And I took a picture of it because I thought to myself, you know, it's the same every time you open your eyes and really look that the people with with bodily mobile disabilities, mobile uh, needs, but if I look in a in the people who are on the standing up line, what I can't see visually 
is the numbers of them who have chronic um, lung disease or chronic heart disease or chronic uh, uh, some uh, uh, never mind a chronic disease whose mothers are dying tomorrow or whose fathers died yesterday and they're going to the funeral or whose something is something because everybody's got something and we are all traveling around actually heroically you look at somebody and you say wow Look at that person with that disability, and they're still traveling. Good for them. We've all got that. Some of us has more clearly a, a mobile disability, but everybody who knows what's in everybody's mind. That some one of their children called yesterday and said, "I'm in the hospital next to my college because I made a suicide attempt yesterday." You know, and whose disability we would even think about having to deal with. I made that one up, thank God. I don't know that one personally. But to not be distracted. I wanted to say one particular sentence today. I didn't, as you know, obviously, I wanted to talk about what are the instructions for and why. So we did that. But I had one, I, I wanted to talk about a book. Just because I haven't read it yet, but I found it uh the, the uh, reference to a book called The Wandering Monk, What Medieval Monks Tell Us About Distraction. And I just read a review of it. Um, in uh, And the review was in the New Yorker, I guess. In, in the, anyway, that's I wrote it down from somewhere. The Wandering Monk, What Medieval Monks Tell Us About Distraction. And... It, uh, I don't know whether, it, I haven't read it yet, so by the next time we see each other, I'll tell you. But I remember a long time ago, uh, I was at an international uh, uh, interfaith conference about um, meditation. I remember that it was in Vancouver. And I remember that uh, one of the, I was one of the presenters talking about mindfulness. And one of the other presenters was a Catholic monk. He was a Catholic priest, uh, ordained, but uh, actually a monk, which is most priests are not monks. They, they are out dealing with the community. And I remember, I don't remember his name, but I remember him, one answer that he gave to one particular question. And the question that somebody asked was, what is the definition of sin? And he said, without describe, without amplification, so I could leave it for you, he said, the definition of sin is distraction. And I remember, I don't remember his name. Catholic monk, definition of sin is distraction. And the uh, and this new book title, which a book might or might not be important. I'll, I'll read it. I'll let you know. But what medieval monks have to tell us about distraction. I think that from reading just the book description, they might not be meaning it in the same sense that this particular monk that I saw 
all those many years ago meant it. And I, th I thought that what he meant is that we weren't paying attention, that kind of distraction. Not I got distracted by some, some um, sense desire or, but that I was not really seeing clearly what the true situation of people were. And that if we were undistracted, that we would see that everybody has some sort of wheelchair, whether it's a structural wheelchair or um, um, a pharmaceutical wheelchair, or we have something holding us up. We have something, we have our friends holding us or not all bad things, wheelchairs turns out to be great, but we have something holding us up. I once asked a woman who was tireless political activist who went to countries in trouble to sustain revolutionary forces, which sounds much more complicated. She went to Nicaragua decades ago when there were people who were going to uh, sustain the revolution, trying to sustain the revolution. And, I, and she had a lot of difficult experiences in her life. And I said, how do you keep your mind together so you can keep on doing this? It's really not a thankless task, but so many setbacks and so many intrigues and so many things working against people actually being helpful on the part of freedom. She said, oh, I just talked to my friends. That holds me up. I talked to my friends. I talked to the people who believe as I do. Just as we do. That's what we're doing here with each other right now. We're talking to our friends. I'm very happy when I see people come back time after time. Because it, who gets to sit with uh, how many friends? We were 74 today, I think, at our zenith. 74 friends came together to talk. Anybody was there their first time today? Oh, Sherry. I'm very glad to welcome you. Where are you from? Well, you have to undo your... Um, I'm, you've, we've met many times. I'm Julie Forsmith's daughter. Oh, okay. This, how... is, hmm? this is my first, actually, Zoom meditation. Well, I'm happy that you're here. It's an unusual day. We did different kinds of meditative practices. Did you find them interesting? Yeah. I mean, I've been, I don't know if you knew this, but mom passed. And, oh, yeah, she, she died just over two years ago, very suddenly. And, of course, being at the height of COVID, um, I just was practicing on my own. Um, but, yeah, I thought there was many things said today that were very poignant. And on the wheelchair, um, I'm a little bit young for somebody in a wheelchair, and I get looked at weird. Uh, but I got over the vanity, and now I, I live in Montclair Village. And every Sunday, I take out my rollator and walk to the farmer's market because I still want to be out. And that was a really 
big decision. How long do I just avoid the world now that I'm <laughs> have all these challenges and um, and it, you know what you're right. It's really fun when they zip you around the airport. <laughs> I'm very glad that you're here. Please come again. I will. I will. Please come again. Yeah, I'd like to talk to you offline at some point. I just, I wrote a message. Um, I get the messages that come for me, so and, thank you. For that. And I, I love seeing you because I keep a picture of you still in my little art room, and it makes me peaceful and reminds me why I'm doing what I'm doing. Thank you very much. Thank you. Was anybody else that they were here for the first time? Robert, was it your first time? No, Barbara. Barbara, here you are. Well, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'm happy you're here. Who else is a first time? I mean, oh, Tamara. How do you say tomorrow to Matt Tamara? It's Tamara. Tamara. And I've attended many um, Spirit Rock retreats online, um, especially during COVID. But I'm so excited to be a part of your Wednesday class. I'll be coming each week. So thank you. Thank you very much. I'm not here every week, but you know that when I'm not here, Donald is here and Heidi is here. And I'll be back here. And I should probably to do a, um, what's coming up, Carl, Carlita? You do it. Yeah, sure. Thanks for asking. Next week, Donald will be here. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> I took his class, I'm Transforming the Judgmental Mind, his retreat. He's great. And I just signed up for yours as well. The, um, um, yours, yours with Sharon Salzberg um, coming up. Oh, that's, that, that's going to be really fun. That's th- three Thursday nights. And it doesn't have a topic. It's two old friends talking to each other. So. I'm so excited. I, I've from the Spirit Rock retreats, I decided how interested I was. I practiced for 12 years mindfulness meditation, um, and I've decided to go back to school. So I'm. I just started my first semester at King's College London, and online studying neuroscience and the psychology of mental health. And it all stems from my Spirit Rock retreats. So oh, I'm so excited. I'm quite excited. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> and and uh, uh, anyway, you should all know that uh, when is it? It's uh, next, not tomorrow, Thursday. Starting next Thursday, the second, the ninth, and the sixteenth. Sharon Salzberg. Oh, there, Carlita has put that online. And we are just having a conversation, the two of us. And. Uh, <laughs> I think it'll be fun uh, not having particularly a script. You know, it was an interesting thing. We have to we have to leave in two minutes. So, was anybody else here for the first time? Let's see. Because then, do you see anybody, Carlita? Yeah, I see hands, and we have several people who responded in the chat as well. Oh, so wait a minute, Lori, put up your hand. I can at least say hello. It's way more important than what I might say. How are you? I'm glad you're here. Amanda, don't go anywhere. <laughs> Lori, where are you? I'm in San Francisco. Okay. How do you say your name? It's actually Robin Lori. Robin Lori. Yeah. 
where, where, now you was all together off my, anyway, wherever you are, I'm happy that you're here. So, good. Uh, who else? Amanda, where are you? Hi, I'm in Redwood City on the peninsula, and I'm on medical leave for hand surgery, so I can never attend these these things um, in the morning. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's it's good. It's good. I just can't. I'm not functional, but I don't have any pain. Um, so going to have that um, another week or so, and then a couple more weeks of recovery and hand therapy. Um, but I just started realizing, oh, I can attend all these spirit rock things that I can never attend. So I've been. This is the first one since I've um, in the couple weeks I've been off now that I, you know, felt up for doing this. So. That's it was really lovely. It was really nice to be with community. I, I was really enjoying the fact that we were more like community than mostly we are. Now let me go back and see. Oh, that's so funny. I just realized that the whole thing of wanted to say, I uh, I had told Carlita in the beginning, she said, what's the name of this talk today? And I said, the name of the talk is Listen to the Rain and Knit. I didn't mention that at all. So we're not going to call that. that. We'll make up another title, Carlita. But it was under the every kind of meditation instruction you can have. Say these words, say those words, think these thoughts, make these expressions of the heart, be with your breath one time, 20 times, 100 times. They all fall into the category of promoting either concentration, which soothes the mind, or insight, which awakens the mind. And what we are trying to do is have the balance of concentration and insight so that on the one hand, the mind steadies itself from continued practice of just the breath, just the blessing, just the injunction for goodness and kindness, just this, just that, all of which tend to have the mind concentrate itself down. And as some one of my friends said, the mind, the mind concentrates at that until everything extra is the heart concentrates itself until everything extra is squeezed out of it and just the sweetness remains which is a lovely thing to say. Uh, I'm going to write that in my corner here. Just the sweetness remains. That's a good name for a talk. Remains. And the other half is concentration. And uh, the other half is to keep the mind bright and alert and looking for what did I learn? What am I learning? What do I know? Well, we went back to the beginning and I said, you know, what did you think about your room? And then you thought, uh, maybe I thought afterwards, well, it's nice that I thought that I like my room. And how about that? I thought about how I could improve it. I wonder if I do that all the time. That it keeps the mind alert, the insight part, the concentration and the insight. And any of the many kinds of instructions we give will be either concentration or insight in a balance that's, um, what's the right word? Um um a balance that is 
functional for uh, conducive. That's it. And a balance that's conducive to wisdom. So that's it. Enough concentration so you don't get scattered and enough clarity. So you really do get wise. Conducive to wisdom. So we did it. And the 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 business about the rain was the other night when California first, well, a week ago when we had heavy, heavy, heavy rain. It was, except for the flooding, which was bad for a lot of people. If you open the window and listen to the rain, it was so soothing on the mind because we haven't had it for five years. And so the instruction for myself was just listen to the rain. And then it was so comforting to just listen to the rain, but you could fall asleep. So then you could knit at the same time, which keeps you awake. So the ultimate Dharma talk is listen to the rain and knit. Well, what do you, where, okay, there we go. Thank you very much. Maybe, Carlita, what do you think, given that I just told that part about listen to the rain and knit, is we could call it that and it could be there on the last sentence and I don't have to remember it for the next time. What do you think? Sounds good to me. All right, yeah. We'll all see each other anon.